This is Jane Siegfried, convener of the podcast Views and Voice Above the Noise, hosted by MASA, Minnesota Association of School Administrators. Today's interview is with Superintendent Bill Adams of the Janesville Waldorf Pemberton or JWP School District. The district serves three communities which are located in the rich farm communities of southern Minnesota. The school district serves 578 students in one K-12 location in Janesville, Minnesota. Recently, I was fortunate enough to attend the spring MASA conference held in Minneapolis. The theme was Celebrate Education. All of the presentations or the speakers or the awards were about positive things that are happening in our state. For example, some of the presentations were about the good things that the regions had done with professional development. The Commissioner of Education, Mary Catherine Ricker, in talking about the legislative emphasis to improve funding, acknowledges that, quote, central office and things like budget are downplayed, but they, quote, show up between the lines. Without them, we could not accomplish our educational goals. So she talked about the positive effects and desires for the legislative process. The award recipients told heartwarming stories about being able to maintain their passion for students throughout their careers. Shane Safir, author of Listening Leader, helped us understand one part of the importance of listening leaders to achieve equity. Such a positive conference left many people and participants with good feeling about the work that is being done in our state and in the value of our profession. We need more of that. Our own Governor Walls has pledged to make Minnesota the education state. One of the original intentions of providing these podcasts was to do that very thing to talk and learn about the good things that are happening across our state. That's why, for me, these podcasts are very fascinating to do, because as they unfold, although there's a general topic for the interview, there are several themes that always emerge with each interviewee that I hadn't counted on, and it's fun for me to piece together and to bring forward those ideas and those themes. For Bill Adams, The original idea was to have Bill share about the work his district has done to create a personalized learning culture in his district. Personalized learning is one of those educational buzz phrases that people think they understand, but it's understood differently by every system that begins at journey. According to KnowledgeWorks, personalized learning means meeting each student at their own level, challenging them with high expectations for academic achievement and growing student agency through, one, instruction aligned to rigorous academic standards and social-emotional skills that students need to be ready for college, career, and life. Two, customized instruction that allows each student to design learning experiences aligned to his or her interests. Three, varied pacing of instruction based on individual student needs, allowing students to accelerate or take additional time based on their level of mastery. Three, real-time differentiation of instruction, supports, and interventions based on data from formative assessments and student feedback to ensure every student remains on track to graduation. Access to clear, transferable learning objectives and assessment results so students and families understand what is expected for mastery and advancement. So what is KnowledgeWorks? KnowledgeWorks is an organization that activates and develops the capacity of communities and educators to imagine, build, and sustain vibrant learning ecosystems that allow each student to thrive 
by delivering innovative educational approaches and advancing aligned policies. Boy, that's a mouthful. But their address is at knowledgeworksoneword.org. Personalized learning is a complex process. It's more than just using technology to let kids use a computer to go at their own pace. Bill Adams and his team have spent years in researching what personalized learning means, figuring out how to implement it, providing professional development, and learning from various stages as they go forward. Let's hear from Bill as to how he became interested in becoming an educator. He has an interesting story. You know, being a, a young a young child, I was raised by parents that really had strong work ethics. I had the luxury of working in a variety of different family businesses. So my mom owned a video store. Uh, she ran a restaurant, and my dad was a carpenter. And before all that, we st- we farmed. You know, the '80s, high interest rates, et cetera. We had to give the farm up. So they opened those businesses. So I worked on a farm. I worked in a video store. I worked in a restaurant. I worked with my dad doing carpentry work. I knew I really didn't want to do any of that when I got older. It just wasn't very much fun. So I wanted to, I did a big brother, big brother, little brother in high school. And I really appreciated the time I had with the young man that I, that I got to counsel. A young boy named Mr. Wall, well, just called Mr. Cowden. He needed some guidance as a young child, and I really was excited to do that. And I just realized that I had a lot of fun with that. I saw him progress, et cetera, and I thought, that's I want to make a career out of that. So I did elementary education, you know, went through the college ranks, and as soon as I, I finished, I felt that I had good quality leadership. And so I went right back into my master's program after my first year teaching my administrative track. I started actually before I finished my master's program. I did them in conjunction, fired through that and had an opportunity to, well, I was thankful that Renville County West gave me the opportunity to lead their elementary school building as, boy, I don't even know if I was 30 yet. And, After how many years of teaching? Uh, six. Yep. So I, I had an opportunity to lead there and then an opportunity to lead in Belle Plain and then the place where I started my my, my life and then my, my teaching career had an opening and I thought I'd throw my hat in the ring for the super, superintendent position. No idea it was going to land on my head, but it did land in, on my head, the hat. And so I've been there for seven years. I'm sure you've heard the expression, you can't go home again, which is from Thomas Wolfe's book of that same title. And here's a quote from the book. You can't go back home to your family, back home to your childhood, back home to a young man's dreams of glory and of fame, back home to places in the country, back home to the old forms and systems of things which once seemed everlasting, but which are changing all the time, back home to the escapes of time and memory, end quote. Bill actually did go home again. Let's hear what that was like. I think the first year, because I was so naive, was like this wonderful utopia of, hey, everybody's so excited to have me back. I'm a hometown boy. I started teaching there. I had good relationships with the families and the students, and it was all good. And then I'm a progressive leader, so I started pushing the envelope and and pushing people to uh, create better versions of themselves and their profession each and every day. That started to, I think wake people up a little bit or jolt them in a way in which they started questioning, well, what is he doing? Is this really what's best for my kid? 
Is he using our kids as guinea pigs? You know, and then there's rumors, too, he's doing this to build a resume, when in reality, it's kind of a slap in the face. My kids are there. My, my nieces and nephews are there. I'm creating a system that I think is best for all kids, and that's really what I started to do. So as the years went on, things got a little bit more difficult as my nieces and nephews aged as well. And, you know, the politics of the superintendency is tough enough. And then you throw in the hometown politics is what created a situation for the family that really needed to, we needed to go elsewhere and, and continue with the career. So not that it's a bad, not that it's bad by any, by any means, but it's for me to maintain healthy relationships with people. I've called friends for my whole life, and yeah, it was just necessary for me to, to, to seek out other leadership opportunities. The journey to personalized learning was both a personal one and a professional one for Bill. It's been an exciting time, but also a very challenging process. As a young child, I, I was not very, well, as I explained to you yesterday, I made some poor choices. And I would say that that's due to, to the fact that I was never, I never had a spark in a sense. that Nobody ever was able to ignite a fire in me to really pursue education until I had an opportunity to be that big brother, little brother that I talked about in high school. But at the same rate, when I was in high school, I thought, you know what, I've got a year and a half left. I'm just going to enjoy it, and I'm not going to get too serious. So then when I went to college, things got serious, and I really took off academically. But I, as I thought back on my career, or my, my academic career in high school, I felt like it was a one-size-fits-all approach. I showed up at a class, everybody was taught the same way, and every was, everyone was expected to be at the same spot in the learning journey at the exact same time to graduate from high school. And I felt like as I reflected on that, I wasn't necessarily ready for some of those learning things, and, and the system was set up like that. I had great teachers, don't get me wrong, real quality teachers that cared about students that worked really hard, and I could tell that they, they put in the time to, you know, to have a positive impact on me but, and the other students in my class. So it's no knock on the teachers and their development and, and, and things of that nature, because I, I do believe that the profession as a whole is really committed to improving each individual. I, I do firmly believe that. I, I never believed that, although they're committed to that, I felt like that was really, really teacher-centered and not learner-centered. And although those are all great things to build capacity as a professional, it's not necessarily always the best route when you apply it to student learning. I feel like in the back of my head, but it wasn't brought to the front of my uh, thinking until I became a principal and superintendent, and I was provided the opportunity to join the American Association of School Administrators Personalized Learning Cohort. So I had an opportunity to visit Innovations Early Learning High School in Salt Lake City, Utah, as well as PC CAPS, which was Park City Center for Advanced placement or career opportunities. And so I got to go in and see these wonderful things happening that were student-centered. I saw the motivation, the engagement. I heard a phrase from one of the students that said, if you put me in a traditional school, again, I would drop out. 
and so you hear things like that. But then I also think about the cynical side of me thought about the student that said if we put them into a personalized learning environment, they'd drop out as well. That morphed into thinking that, no, a personalized learning environment does involve traditional style of education because that does work for some kids. And if it's working for those kids, we need to maintain that system for those student learners. But we need to pursue alternative methods and modes of instruction for those that maybe need to be in another area. That really ignited the fire. I mean, that's when it's, it's all the lights clicked, you know. How long ago was that? About three and a half, four years ago. And it was all, it's all hands on deck from that point on because I, I saw, you know, I, I needed to see that other people were trying these things or were being innovative, cutting edge, taking risks, et cetera. Because in this role, you know, we don't have, we don't have continuing contracts, so you need to be careful. And it got to the point where that was a point in my career, too, where I made a, a cognizant decision of I'm not going to think about my career anymore because that was selfish. I'm going to think about what's best for kids. And if a board of education doesn't believe that that's a good process for their school community, then so be it, and I'll move on to another community in which that fits my values and, and what I believe in and my educational philosophy, so to speak. I came back to JWP, and we screened the movie Beyond Measure by Vicki Abelis, and, and she also did A Race to Nowhere. And so we, we screened that with our students, with our faculty, staff, and then our, our school community involving parents. Based on conversations, it was very clear that there was a there was a thirst for exploring different ways of providing education for kids. There was a lot of excitement in it. When it came to the staff, though, there's a lot of work involved in it, and it created a lot of stress on staff. We've made some adjustments along the way. So we started off by just having a conversation about, okay, how do, how do we change this system? What does it look like? Uh, so we decided to hire a personalized learning coach to really focus on the work and development. And so the idea was to go out and research and then to bring back and help coach staff members to start taking you know, risks, pushing their their content delivery differently, going from a teacher to a facilitator. And, you know, we heard things such as, I went to college to be a teacher, not a facilitator, and things of that nature from staff. And I, some of those things were mind-boggling. As I look back, I should have expected that because, as I stated earlier, I f- the, the system has trained teachers very well in the traditional mode of delivering instruction. And we have really quality teachers that, that, that are able to build effective lessons, introductory pieces, formative assessment, summative assessment, grading, so forth. The, the content delivery and the assessment of whether or not students learned. Where we struggle with is the response to that gap in learning or that acceleration in learning where maybe a student has content, mastered the content as we looked at this system, we were also looking at other areas or other experts to pull in that could help guide our work. And so we talked to um, education elements out of San Francisco, and we got a, uh, a quote from them. And for our district, for them to come in for a year was like $250,000. In a district my size, there was no way I was going to pay $250,000. So at that point, it secured the idea that we hire our own person in-house to do this work. And so we connected with the Leadership Design Academy out of CSL 1 in Wisconsin, which is where Jim Rickabaugh worked and kind of created the PL work. So they do the Leadership Design Academy, and it's really, really cost-effective. Their goal is not to make money. Their goal is to change education in, in the United States. 
we started working with them, and we looked at the the cons- well, not the constellation, but the honeycomb that they talk about. That you really start at the center, which is you know creating relationships with kids, conferring and conferencing, providing timely and actionable, timely and actionable feedback to kids, so forth and so on. And then you kind of work out from the the center until you have all pieces of the honeycomb in place. So we started with, we called it our constellation or our true north, what we firmly believe in as a, as a school system and where we need to start. And that started off with relationship building, timely and actionable feedback, as I stated earlier, conferring and conferencing with kids, and then multiple modes of instruction. And so we started there with that constellation. And we started to have that conversation with staff and how we do this and providing them coaching sessions to train them along the way. And what I'll say is that I was I was very surprised that our our high school staff was all hands on deck and moving forward. Let's rock and roll with this. Where our elementary staff was a little bit more hesitant, and I was really surprised because usually it was the opposite way. In all my experiences as a leader, not saying that that's a bad thing by any means. They just had more questions, and. and um, it's been an interesting process because there's been some interesting things that folks have maybe brought to the table to, to maybe attempt to derail our work. Like what? Throwing out things such as just weird things. And it was mainly sparked at the coaches and the poor coaching that was taking place and maybe the attempt or the process of coaching that was happening and how... Um, eight of eight teachers on the second floor of the building that are looking for jobs and if this doesn't change you're going to be hiring a lot of new staff and then we do the research to find detailed research and find out one person is seriously looking for a job you know so it was that generalization that all staff feel this way when you get people come in everyone feels this way and when you'd really dive and you you ask the question well well how many is everyone well, you know, seven or eight of us. Okay, who are those seven or eight? Well, I'm not going to share that information. Okay, so is there really seven or eight of them, or is it just you? And we try to have conversation with people. When you come to vent, represent your opinion, not everyone's opinion. And, and um, because we can make progress then, if you're coming in to represent others, we can't we can only help you, and then we can help that individual when they share their issues with us. Another theme that ran through Bill's comments was his attitude toward failures. He used failures to get better, and he encouraged people to look at that and be reflective. His motto about how to fix that was apparent in his answer to the question I asked him about whether or not parents had given him some pushback. We try, we fail, we adjust, we fix. You know, And so we, we had failures along the way. Like We didn't think about... If we let kids go at their own pace, what do we do when they're done? In some cases, they're released to the media center. Teenagers in a media center, they go to Netflix, and they watch Netflix, and they bring blankets all of a sudden. Now they're bringing pillows. And, and so, yeah, and, and, and what do you expect? You know, unless you give them the next step, and it's no different than when you, when, when you first started teaching an ounce of planning is worth a pound of discipline. You have to have solid plans in place for these kids so what's the next step and then that created the next conversation okay what do we do because from 825 to 309 they need to be engaged in the learning progress process and then we talked about okay maybe we need to start looking at depth of knowledge so yes kid has completed a task and shows that they can do it but how about taking that 
to a deeper level. And so then we talked about, okay, let's look at ladders and depths of knowledge. And so we started having those conversations and teachers started developing uh, learning ladders and things of that nature. So that's where we got the pushback from the parents, though, because they would see the kid's Chromebook and look at their history and saw, well, you spent an hour on Netflix and you have an M in this class missing assignment in this class. Why didn't you do that assignment? So then parents were looking at it as saying, well, you know, in the real world, they have deadlines and, and they have to turn things in. If they don't turn it in, they get fired. And our pushback was that to, is really, do you really want us to have a deadline on learning? For a kid that can't maybe master it, they're not ready cognitively to to understand this content. You really want us to say you're going to get a C or a D or an F because you're supposed to know it right now. Because one of our board members was pushing back on this. And about three years ago, his son was a wrestler. The varsity coach was going to use him as a seventh grader on the varsity. This board member and parent was very upset my child's not ready to wrestle on the varsity. And so I use that analogy with that board member is, okay, so you're saying that your child has to be ready to show mastery and compete at varsity. So what you're saying is they have to be ready to show mastery. But in the classroom, they don't have to be ready to show mastery. They have to show it now, you know, and, well, that's different. No, it's really not that different. So it's been all those conversations that we've been having to engage in with our families. And the next one is a standards-based grading movement. And so we we feel we really need to have that in place in order to complement our work in terms of personalized learning so our kids know where they're at in the learning continuum. Recently, we've had pushback on that one with, well, what about a GPA and class rank that colleges need for admittance? That was my job to research that, so I've called 25 learning institutions, including Harvard, just in case we have a Harvard uh, applicant. Out of the eight universities that have gotten back to me, all eight of them accept kids without a class rank or GPA. Part of our work with parents is to help them understand that admission to college or university is not the same process anymore as it was when they went. There's a recent scandal in the Strib, for example, today about parents buying their child's way into higher education. But to a much lesser degree, because of grade inflation, tutoring classes for ACT and SATs, plagiarizing writing samples, college entrance procedures and admission policies have changed as well. Some criteria such as class rank have gone away from many admission policies and procedures in many universities. And I will tell you that out of all those schools that have called me back so far, uh, Minnesota State Mankato is by far the most progressive. That surprised me, but they have somebody in their admissions office that is uh, working on their, I I believe, their thesis, and it is on a comparison to a standards-based grading system and a traditional grading system. So that person is driving the work within the admissions department, and she said, you know, when when I called her and asked her this question, she, she just said, I'm so happy to hear that your high school is actually thinking about doing this work and because we do get these calls from time to time and people are hesitant and yet you know that's the misnomer out there is that we don't accept these kids and we absolutely do. Bill has developed a beach analogy to describe how people find their way through this change effort. From a beach perspective you've got people that are out in the deep end, diving, swimming with the sharks, enjoying it, and just loving the learning and the failure and the the fixing. And then you have people that are between the shore and the deep end that are really kind of starting to get a good head of steam and move forward. 
Then you have people in the shallow that have finally just kind of started to participate, and you still have people trying to dip their toes in the water, still observing, watching the people fail, and thinking, oh, I guess I can do that because they recovered and they're swimming well. But we do have, you know, there are some people that, and a very small amount, that are still just not even willing to put their toes in. And those folks, we've told that we'll support them in their hunt for anything that would match their education philosophy. As JWP has gone through this change process, I asked Bill, where do you get your support and guidance? Honestly, my support comes from the American Association of School Administrators. The people I've met, like Jeff Fake out of Williston, North Dakota, Jeff Dillon out of, two Jeffs, Jeff Dillon out of Idaho. Those are the people that I kind of network. Mort Sherman and Dan Dominich have really kind of spearheaded this work. I work really closely with LDA for support, the Leadership Design Academy. Those are the folks that I really tend to connect with the most because they're doing the work that we're doing. So when I'm struggling, we contact them. How do you address this? And I get support that way. The beach analogy helps describe where people are in the change process. Bill has another analogy to describe the actual ups and downs of the change process itself. You know, we did start using the metaphor of the storm before the norm. And you're in a ship right now. You've got to weather the storm, get through the waves, the ups and downs, the crashing, the water falling into the boat, the possible sinking, and then the re, you know recouping. And we're in a storm part right now of our of our sail. And eventually, it, the waters are going to calm again, and then there's going to be another storm. There is. There's a storm in before the Norman. Our teachers are in it to have a positive impact. So when they question something, it's not out of angst. It's out of the fact that they want to do their absolute best for kids. And if they feel like they're failing their students, they're going to ask questions. Another theme for Bill became the idea of how do you make transformations in a rural setting? And what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of working in a rural setting? Because this stuff is happening, it's like schools within a school in larger districts, or maybe they have two high schools, so one high school is this, you know, where it's not in a rural school where you have less access to resources. In my opinion, our teachers, I mean, yes, we've had the struggles, but they're hitting it. They're knocking it out of the park. So with a rural school, you can make change quick. It doesn't have to take seven years to get through each grade level or whatnot, you can, you can attack it and make things change pretty dang quick. You ha it's easier to communicate with the entire community. It's less, it's less time because there's less people, there's less systems, there's less civic organizations. Or, you know what, they're just, it's easier to get to the masses in, in short order as opposed to a larger system where you've got more groups to meet with. You've got a variety of different circumstances within the, a large urban setting or metropolitan setting where uh, you know you've got a variety of different folks to meet with whereas in the rural system it's is pretty quick you can pull together your entire staff in a morning there you go all right that's what we're doing that's what i would say are the advantages to the rural system the disadvantages is the access to resources so we have some kids that maybe are interested in robotics or let's say forensics and we can't offer it because we have two kids that want it we've overcome those barriers and it took contract language, obviously. So now our high school teachers are compensated $500 to write the course initially, and then they get, I can't remember what it is, $300 per student or $200 per student that they get for each course that they teach 
online or hybrid style. So I might have a full load and I'm going to teach this online course. I'm going to get the $500 to do it initially, the first plan. And then it's like two or $300 per student in it. I'm teaching a full load, but I've got this forensic course that's online. I'm teaching that as well. So it's additional income. So now we don't have to tell kids, no, you can't take it because there weren't enough kids in it. So we're able to personalize in that way as well. It's those things that we had to discover and fix and then work it out in a contract and things of that nature. But I'm, I'm really proud. Bill discusses what he believes superintendents of the future need to be and do. You know, things are changing so rapidly in the world that it really is just creating a system that's constantly evolving and just having the mindset of, as I stated at the beginning of this conversation, that this is a journey and we can't look at it as a destination and we really need leaders in the system. And then we need leaders that are going to lead by example, by taking risks and, and things of that nature with their staff, willing to, absolutely willing to fail. And Learning from the experience. Yes. Because what I look at it is, you know, my colleagues and I, we talk a lot about innovation. We talk a lot about personalization. We talk a lot about tech integration. We talk, you know, we talk about those things, but it's the modeling that's important. Bill's next stage in his life is to assume the superintendency in New London, Minnesota. When I got offered New London, I was there and I interacted with each of the groups. I walked away saying, this is the absolute this is it. I got the call. It was it. Everything happens for a reason. With this new job comes a transition plan and the school board has offered him an onboarding plan as well. So I've got that all together. I've handed it to the board chair. She's reviewed it. They're doing also what's called an onboarding plan, which I thought was kind of interesting. And I reviewed that last night and was able to provide some feedback, which was minimal because it really was, ironically enough, in very close alignment to my transition plan. But it really is the tour of listening sessions, meeting with the civic organizations, meeting with the community, meeting with families, meeting with students, meeting with staff. Just creating those expectations. High school principal, a parent calls me, they're pissed off at you because of a decision you made. They talk to you, they're fed up with you, and now they call me. How do you want me to handle that? Tell me how you want me to deal with that. Do you want me to refer them back to you? Do you want to meet together? Do you want me to listen and then research? How do you want me to deal with this? Because I want to have a strong working relationship. It's, it's those kinds of things that you need to understand. Like, how do you want me to respond to this? But at the same rate, not letting go of my values either. That's how I believe I need to respond to it. Those types of conversations. What are your expectations for me in the building? You know, what are your expectations for me in working with you in your evaluation? What is the current norm from my leaders, my district office staff and then as teachers what those questions what are you super proud of uh, your building and what is something that you just you're yearning for getting to understand that the ins and outs of the community what the community expectation is for communication how often does my board chair want to talk my board chair right now talks every single day he's in my office or calling me i don't foresee that with my new board chair I just don't get that sense. She's going to be much more hands-off, I can tell, but yet involved, maybe a good mix. So it's all those things, getting to understand like what it, what is expected of me in my leadership role. And then there's the personal side of it, too. Where I get my family acclimated you know, and get them involved and, and things of that nature. So with every new adventure comes the saying of goodbye to what was happening in the past. And Bill talks about saying goodbye to some place where he was raised and went to school and now has been superintendent. That's going to be really hard. I'm going to be emotional about it. I know I will. 
there might be some tears because it really is a place I it made me who I am it's me it's it's my community it you know it takes a village the people there I love dearly got so many good friends there but not only that it's, it's the mentors that I had that live there yet my former teachers that are so wonderful and have been so supportive my mom and dad are there my brother and sister my nine nieces and nephews I mean really the teachers that I worked with and taught with that I have a firm respect for it's gonna be hard it's gonna be really difficult it's mixed emotions you know the other piece is, is this is the interesting piece so you have U.S. Highway 14 that runs, you know, from Rochester to Mankato. And then so we've got Janesville right here and Mankato right here. Well, on your way from Janesville to Mankato to the north of the highway, it's my father and mother, my sister, mm-hmm. my brother. And right south, or south of them, across railroad tracks, is our home. We call it the Adams Compound. We're all within a quarter mile of each other. We have a pool. So all summer long, it's my nine nieces and nephews and my four kids screaming, having fun from sunup to sundown. And that's going to be really hard, too, for my, my kids to, to say goodbye to their cousins. And that's going to probably be the most emotional part for me. Bill Adams, superintendent of Janesville, Waldorf Pemberton, or JWP, and his team are creating personalized learning in their rural setting to excite students and to engage each one of them in their own education. He demonstrates several of his themes, including the use of so-called failure to create a better system, his belief in the hard work of teachers, and his understanding of a complex change process, which will all be carried from JWP to his new setting in the near future in New London, Minnesota. Thank you for listening. This is Jane Sigford signing off. My email is jlsigford at comcast.net if you have any comments for me. I leave you with words of wisdom from Bill. The fact that students are proud to call themselves a JWP Bulldog. And that to me is probably the most rewarding because before I got there, it was a place in which people, I think kids felt they had to go because that's where they lived. Whereas now I feel as though they're proud to say they're there.